Hello and welcome to another episode of Lowdown today. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Quinnipiac head coach on the women's side, Dave Clark. Dave, fantastic to finally have you on. Thanks, Connor. Looking forward to it. Dave, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Wow. Um, earliest football memory would have been clear memory was going to the Ireland-Russia game at Daly Mount Park in 73-74. Uh, I lived down the road uh, on Manor Street, so I always remember the lights at Daly Mount then before we moved out to Donamade. But yeah, I was going to see Ireland against Russia, Ireland against Turkey. Don Given scored a hat-trick in both games uh, and being was in the stand in both of them. So I can vividly remember that was the clearest memory Um you know, going with my dad and to those games and then starting to go to England as well for games. But, and then I was talking, I was actually at a clinic last night with Paddy Bourne, the U18 coach at Everton. Uh, he's over for an, a week and we were sitting chatting and I have an affinity for Everton because the first game I went to in England then where it's really vivid, everything I remember about the going on the, the ceiling ferry, the Columbia, uh, Dublin to Hollyhead and up and going to the Liverpool Everton at, 77 FA Cup semi-final at Hillsborough. Uh, it was 2-2. Everton were robbed. Brian Hamilton scored in the last minute. Clyde Thomas disallowed it. And then they got battered uh, in the replay. Liverpool won 3-0. Uh, and then United obviously won the cup final. But that that whole, that that was, I remember that whole trip. The whole, I was only 10 at the time. And that's gone with my dad and Leeds, Man United were in the semi-final and just all the banter and the singing on the boat and the ferry, the different fans, Liverpool, Leeds, Man United, all travelling on over from Dublin. So those are my clearest memories. That's proper football nostalgia and you'd say it's relics of an ancient football culture. I mean, speaking of football cultures, I mean, you've spent the vast proportion of your professional career as a player and as a coach in the United States of America, where at times football has been quite fledging. What made you make the jump over there? I mean, we're only just speaking about it off camera. Yeah, I, I was lucky to play for a club with, with Belvedere that had players that prior to my my last year at U18 would have been 85, which is the year I did my leaving. And we had players that were in America and going to America. Um, you know, Paul Gillard, whose brother, you know, Paul was in the Ireland, that two is youths, Mark Brayton the year before me again. Uh one of two East Tots, you know, that played for the Irish teams that won the Euros and got to the semi-finals in the World Cup. So there was always a path there uh, that said America. Then we also had a number of people, players in the League of Ireland, players going to England. So the pathway was always there for us that if you didn't go to England and you didn't play in Ireland, you still had an opportunity to go to the US. Also, my dad played in England uh, he played with Millwall and he was one of that generation that left Ireland with no formal education. So he never actually, he was self-taught in how to read and write. And he never wanted me to go pro, never wanted me to leave school early. Um, so luckily enough, like I was out injured as well for two years at U15, 16 into 17. So that, that sort of gave me the grounding, which I'm sure we'll get into the coaching. But it also got me around people that made me think, listen, you know, my dad drove a home. You don't have to be a player in England. You don't have to go to one in the 92. You can be a ref. You can be a manager. You can be a coach. You can play elsewhere. And from there, then 
going to the US was always a possibility and subsequently in 87 I did so and in many ways it getting injured was the best thing ever to happen and you know my whole life sort of pathway changed uh you know with going to the US and no regrets about that either and as we see by that beautiful background of yours there on screen Dave for those of who are listening on Apple and Spotify uh Dave has the Kinnipiag forest nestled behind him and deep into Connecticut landscape I mean you're entering your 24th season at Kinnipiag Dave for those who are unaware I mean primarily a UK or European listenership based how would you describe college soccer in the US it's to understand college soccer in football at our level, uh, you have to also then understand the whole landscape of college sports. It's it's up there. You know, it's a pathway for every player. You know, most of the generation of players that played in England, the John Harks, the Tim Howards, that that generation all came through the college system. Less so now because the pathway is going pro. But you have every other sport that is financially backed, that is part of the fabric of the structure of the U.S. Uh, sports system. So you go from high school recruited into college from football, basketball, and it's just big time. Our school, Quinnipiac, you know, our, our ice hockey team are the national champions. And that was like a massive, massive thing for a school at our level. You know, that would be akin to again Celtic winning the Champions League again you know that that just the school at our level doesn't do that um, and that happened a couple of weeks ago and the, the place is still buzzing uh, everywhere you go now people recognise the name so sports are a, fa a real fabric of American society and the pathway for most high school kids is to go to college and then to be in that top 1% of the 1% to go and play a sport uh, is is the pathway that they all forge. So, you know, I look at what we have, we're basically seven figures in scholarship money every year. It's a multi, you know, over the course of a four year, you're talking multi-million dollar investment, uh, the support staff that we have, you know, that's grown down the years. I think now I counted like about nine staff, which is almost akin to clubs at a, at a semi-professional, professional level, you know, in Europe as well. And the investment around the school is just incredible. Yeah. So I always use Quinnipiac when I'm talking to Europeans or people that know the game. We are like Celtic in Scotland. We're, we're in we're in what the, we're in the Scottish Premier. We're not winning the Champions League. But you're coming to a you're coming into a university, you're coming into a club with a good culture, with a clear style of play, with values, who want to compete with some of the best in the region and around the, you know, around the world. So it's the same thing, you know, and, and it's, it's a great opportunity for anybody in any sport uh, to go to whether it's division one, two or three, it, it's a complicated process, but the opportunity to play full time and get an education and graduate with a degree, having played four years as a, basically a full-time athlete, you know, there, there's it's second. The only thing that's better is being a full-time professional where you you've actually have a career that you can look back on, but most of these players at our level, at levels above us, will never ever lose that memory of what it was like to be an athlete at the institution. And you can imagine 
the big time colleges, the big time universities in sports like basketball and and football. That it's just you know to go up to to run out and uh, like when we played. Give you an example: we played Penn State in the national tournament, and on the day that we were training, Penn State were playing a football game at home. So we were we were training in the stadium next to the football stadium. There was ninety thousand at the football game. And I swear there was probably 15,000, you know, around us watching us train. And then we got to go to the game. I mean, that's how do you explain that to someone in Ireland or Europe that this is what college sports is. We're we're playing Penn State soccer team, but their football team's playing in a 100,000-seat stadium. It's incredible when you think one about of the, it. One of the things you touched upon there, you likened it to Celtic and the Lisburn Lions. You know, to some certain people, could call pessimists they could say that lack of culture and community could be quite a deterring factor in north american sports the culture and community piece that you see as a competitive advantage you use that to your strengths upon recruiting does that is that a big far, big factor in terms of potential recruits joining your campus Dave? yeah yeah you know i talk to parents when we get down into signing players i mean you, you're talking for us like we're at $75,000 a year school. So a scholarship could be worth seventy up to $75,000 a year. And over four years, you're talking about a quarter of a million to $300,000 in an investment. But also then the parents have to trust me that I'm looking after their daughter's best interest. So we sit down and say, like, I'm, I become a surrogate parent to these players. Uh, and, and they have to, you get to know their, their goals, their ambitions, their aspirations. And then... You know, I always say is like that these players go come in and out your life, but 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 it's a life changing moment. I mean, we we have it. Every player that we're we're one of those schools where most of our players, ninety nine percent of our players, will graduate in their time there. They don't transfer, and we also have some very excellent programs. But they're life changing. You know, it's a it's a life changing decision to come to a school like us. It's a it's a life changing in terms of the degree that they get, the, the money that they might earn, but then just the experiences as well. But yeah, we live, we talk about family. It, it does become a family. Like the other day, we uh, two of our senior players were in the, their apartment complex burnt down and their lot of water damage to, to their apartment. They haven't been able to get back in. They're hoping to get back in today, but their teammates have rallied around them. The school will rally around them. You know, we'll get the, anything that's missing will be replaced. Um, people to look after them, you know, put them up and get them clothes, get them items, you know. In once on a campus like our size, yeah, we've we've got ten thousand students, but we do have a lot of commuters as well uh, in the graduate programs. But on the two main campuses where the players live, you know who the athletes are: be it ice hockey, be it basketball, be it soccer, uh, field hockey, you name it. And they have a certain status, and they get to know people in the different departments, the dorms. The academics, uh, intramurals, athletics—it's it, great, and it, it, there's a camaraderie and a culture that does exist. And, you know, and that one of our three values that we have is family, and we sort of we really believe that. I believe it. The players believe it, and as I said, the parents have to trust that I'll look after the best interests of their daughters for four years, and I think we do a good job of that. You said it best. You likened yourself to being a surrogate parent, Dave. And I mean, being in the program for now, it's going to be 24 years. I mean, you would have had to deal with a different lot of generations of players and indeed staff members. How would you say your own leadership style has had to evolve throughout that time? 
it's one of these it's a good question because it's one of these when you look back you think you know you think you're a leader as a player like I'm, I was captain of my university team and you think that that's that you have those qualities but then when you look back you you start to say don't I don't know if I had a clearly defined leadership style you know like a conscious decision I wasn't going into into means to be a certain way uh, you, you let your personality take over I did start a I was going to do an, another master's in organizational leadership, you know, to sort of feel my pathway to, could I use it, you know, to be an administrator in the game beyond. And then you start to see that there's actually patterns in how you lead and, you know, are you more of a dictator? Or are you more of a, you know, um, a democratic leader? Do you, do you lead by example? Do you lead by motivation? But, no, I, I think I've been more of that sort of principal, teacher, educator, life skills through the sport, you know, connecting everything to if you're a minute late to practice, you're a minute late to the bus. How does that transfer into your major? So we have pre-med, we have nurses, kids who worked in emergency rooms, kids who were on EMT runs for experience. And a minute at that level in that world, in that job, saves lives we're a minute late and they're all gone dave i was only a minute late yeah but but in your real world a minute is the difference between life and death when you're in a an emergency room and we've had players come back in and talk to the players that they used to get upset when i picked them pick on them for those little things and how they looked and how they acted and whether they were on time or not and then once they've worked in a hospital or in a court setting and you know that that minute or that's those seconds are life-changing for the people involved they they start to connect that that's where the discipline comes from so yeah it's it, it becomes the educate you know i'm an educator at heart so yes i'm in a full-time coaching environment but there's a part of me that like even if i stepped up to a level and i, I recognize myself i'm not i wouldn't be a head coach you know, or a manager, I think I'd be more that assistant who wants to be on the field and working with the players. I don't want to, I wouldn't want to deal with the media. I wouldn't want to deal with contracts. I wouldn't want to deal with the expectations and then having to be under scrutiny the whole time. I'd rather be behind the scenes going, you know, this one's playing well. Let me talk to them. You know, let's go watch this game. Let's go watch, plan for the next game. So recognizing as well what your strengths are. You know, I've developed into a leadership role but I've never had formal training in it. Even if you go back to coach education, nobody's like, I look at now what we're doing on the A license and they have to do, you know, leadership training and leadership documents and put it all together. I didn't have that. You know, nobody sat me down at 18 or 16 or 20 and go, you know, you've got leadership qualities and you should learn to do this. Even when I was teaching, it was, it was never, a. I don't remember ever taking a class in leadership to be, how do you how do you how do you run like you know a grade like if I'm teaching you know first grade and the five teachers one of the teachers has to be a leader for that grade or tenth or seventh whatever it is I think over time you, you you've learned like different styles and what it'll be up to other people to say yeah he's become a leader but I've never had any formal training in it to say that that's specifically my traits it's more trial and error personality 
education and then just experience over time rather than a formal you know like i said if i did a master's in it it'd be like okay oh yeah i see that's my personal i've got to try this i gotta try that uh, i think i've done that a little bit more organically than being really a natural leader well, i mean we've touched upon some aspects there is to perhaps secrets behind your longevity 20 pa over 24 years things such as a life skills approach other things such as the strong culture i mean what have been some of the other secrets behind your longevity at the university did it, it it's funny because i you know I, I get labeled as not like i'm not really i'm not an extrovert um i tend to be quiet but i, I tend to be standoffish uh I, I i probably use the term more like i don't suffer fools uh, and I have a I have a cup in there that one of my courses, one of my uh, license courses gave me. Do I look like a people person? But I, as much as I'm not, I'm not really a people person per se. I am because I do integrate well with different departments, and I I've never been one to you know I I talk to the like the custodial staff. I talk to the security staff. Everyone in admissions communications sports media sports medicine i think we're a program that a lot of a lot of people in those departments want to work with because i treat them with respect you know so i respect everyone in the game whether it's the referees the linesmen opposition coaches the driver on the bus like we we had a bus driver for five years who was part of our team you know and looked after the players on the road and he was an ex-state trooper as well so we made him, we always paid for his meals and looked after him, which some teams don't always do. And it's just, oh, well, he's the driver and they expect them to pick it up. No, no. So in that regard, I think you you learn, you know, and that's probably a leadership quality without actually identifying it, that my staff and my team is not just the players. It's everybody around it. It's the people that help get the players into the school it's the people in the dorms that I can call up and say, listen, I need to get these two players in this dorm together, you know, because they do favors, but they also know the type of program that you run, uh, that you're trying to look after the best interests of the players. So in, in that, I think over time, I've had to be more outgoing and dealing with people, but I've learned, you know, like the only, the only thing I'm really comfortable talking about, well, there's always two things that you can talk about anywhere in the world, is football and music. Um, and I, I'm one of those that, like I, I say, I'm not a people person, but having said that, I'll go anywhere in the world and knock on the door and talk football. And I, you get to meet people, but that's just what I'm comfortable talking about. But if I go out with my wife or go out with our friends, I sit in the corner and don't say, I don't drink anyway but i'm not she's outgoing like i'm not i wouldn't consider myself outgoing but then when you see me coaching you see me talking about football everyone's like oh you know i light up and i'm talkative and i never shut up but that's just that's a comfort thing but i think that over time learning how to have that learning to communicate and i'd still say it's a weakness in me as a coach my ability to communicate one-on-one -on -one is not a strength but i'm still working on it you know, and I still learn and to develop those relationships and having those honest conversations. And it'll probably still take me another 20 years to get better at it, uh, to talk one-on-one -on -one with players and, and be honest and have just regular conversations too. 
I'd imagine you're doing yourself a great disservice, Dave, because like obviously a huge part of your role too is recruitment, right? And obviously over 20 plus years, you would have had to undergo multiple iterations of teams at the helm. I mean, just for people that are a little bit unaware, with the season just being so short, 13, 14 weeks of a year, I mean, what percentage of the workload that you have does recruitment play? Recruitment is huge um, for any for any of the sports. Uh, I mean, we're already we're still working on twenty three, but we're already on twenty four and starting to look at twenty five. Uh, my assistant does a lot of. We sort of break it up. We had, I'm, I'm I'm in the process of hiring a second assist, another assistant, but we have one who focuses on Canada and one on the top players. I tend to be more the sort of compliance aspect once the players are coming in and trying to really narrow down who we target, you know, so I'll do Zooms, calls, one-on-one meetings. Uh, and then we have one who's more domestic. So I, I'll still be the initial introduction emails every day, putting in the emails, um, emails, initial contacts, reaching out to coaches. So that's, that's a constant, um, it is a year-round year round program. I know the season is short, but they are training full-time. So they have been in full-time almost every day since January. They just finished up last week. So it goes in pockets. It's full-time August 1 to basically Christmas, when they leave at Christmas, first week in December. Come back in January last week, in January right up until last week, first week in May, full-time. And then they'll go away and they'll be under the guide of the strength conditioning coach uh, throughout the summer. So... But for us, it's always, you're always trying to replace players. So we, as soon as you win, you're still trying to, hey, I've got to, I know I, this, you know, you were on the team, you only had two years left. I know I've got to replace you in two years. So you always have to think about what does the roster look like in 2023, 2024, 2025? What positions do we need replacing? Over time, that's evolved as well. If Keep changing things, looking at it, depth charts by position. If our formation changes, at the level of the program, the level of expectations, do I go academic? When I first started at Quinnipiac, I was very much into technical players. We had good players, but then other teams went athletic and strength and size. So then you're losing games. Now you have to evolve. Then we went international. Then, you know, international is like, do we go Ireland? We went Holland, Iceland. We went European players. And then you go Anglo and Irish. So you're constantly evolving into, into the type of team. What I've spent, what I've been doing myself over the last two years and started in COVID as well was reaching out to directors of coaching across the US um, and really hammering home that we have three top 10 programs, nursing PA and broadcast journalism. Any player, anywhere, any student anywhere in the US that looks at, that is interested in those three programs, Quinnipiac should be in their top, top five without a shadow of a doubt. So it's always trying to connect with that player. Can I find that player in California, in Washington State, in Arizona, um, hundreds, thousands of miles away from the school and convince them to come here. So it's been reaching out, sharing that culture, sharing the vision, how we play, sending clips of goals, like some of it, like how we play is not the typical college team. We're not as direct and we're not as physical right now with the and players that come in is that we've got a very specific type of player that we want uh, that sort of fits it academically and soccer wise. So that that's become a constant and 
even if you don't think you're, even if you think you're done, like I think I've, I've been done with recruiting for the fall, but we have two players that were interested in transferring in. So all of a sudden, everything I wanted to do yesterday uh, had to sort of take a back seat because I needed to Zoom with the players, get their transcripts, reach out to their running coach, get to admissions, get them into the system, NCAA compliance, NCAA. Like all of a sudden, it's not just, yeah, talk to them and we're interested and look at the video. It's, it's There's a lot of administration and then, you know, if it's international players, you got to involve international departments, you got to, you know, and then once they, if they commit, then you're talking visa, which is US immigration and getting all the paperwork so then go to the embassy. Like, it's just, it's nonstop. And even when they come here is when are they arriving? Are they in the dorms? What's in like medical insurance? I've got a checklist of everything that, and that's just, that's just one player, you know, and then you go through that with a player. So, we, you know, I went to Europe and with the intention of signing players and they went elsewhere. So you've gone through and I visited, went to see these players three times, three different countries, and then they still decide to go elsewhere. Now you're going, all right, who's next on the list? It's no different than clubs in Europe. You've got to have that depth chart. So that's the difference where before, I think when I started, I was looking at one or I was always looking at the best player and just now I'm looking at by position. You know, we've similar to what we've been doing, what I've been doing with the license, and I've been building qualities of what I want in a goalkeeper, right back, left back, what I want in a centre back. So things we didn't always have depth in the goalkeeper position because of the school and sitting on the bench. Now I'm like, I need you to be five nine and above distribution, communication, presence, not necessarily shot stopping. But the key thing is you know, the distribution would be number one for me, the ability to play out from the back where 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was just like, I, I need a goalkeeper who can play regardless of size. Now it's starting to evolve. And what does a six and an eight look like? But that, that could change next year. If again, depending on where we are as a school and the success or lack of success that we might have, you might have to change, but yeah, it's, it's constantly, recruiting is the number one thing and sometimes Connor you feel like you're wishing your life away you know with colleges because you're always looking at next year's team you know and that's I think over time I've learned to live in the moment and enjoy the moment now and have players like the players are disconnected from that but as a staff you're always going next year and the year after and you you're looking on paper going oh we could have a good team and I've stopped trying to do that where you're looking down the road and just go, I'll focus on what we have now, but they are intertwined. You have to continue to keep recruiting. Um, you know, like I look at our men's ice hockey, number one team in the country, best team in the country, wins a national championship and nine players are either gone, nine plus players gone to the NHL, gone pro around the, the world or have graduated so they've won a national championship with these players and then they've got to get in 10 new players to start again in August. Like that's just, you know, that's just mind blowing. You know, that, that'd be like a team winning the Champions League and then 10 of them being in the, uh, you know, in the, in the transfer window and looking at new, out of contract and looking at new clubs and then you going back and then being expected to win the Champions League again next year with a whole new team. It's insane, but that's, that's how they they have to operate. We're not as bad, but four or five players, like we have a good core this year, but we're 
we are going to be graduating four or five players who've been key to our success in the league and the championship the last couple of years. So 20, 24 and 25 becomes huge. You speak of like it sounds to be quite formal like driven and it's very, very, very important to have that process, Dave. But I mean, how big of a role? I mean, you've been doing it for so long now. How much of a role does your intuition and gut feel play in terms of getting that substance out of a player? Yeah, it has to. You know, I, I mean, we're all fans of the game, or I am, and I, I, I still want to see the game played a certain way. You know, you might get other college coaches who only see the college world. I see it more like a global sense. The game is more important to me than just a job um and how we play and i you know I'd, I'd love to i'd love to be able to play like barcelona peak barcelona on the women's game i know that's not practical but those are the players so every time i go like even last night i was i was talking to the group of coaches they were there to watch paddy work and he, were, he was talking about everton's game model but they were asking me about identifying talent because that's what i've done in you know with us soccer and my other roles in I go, I'm just looking at what stands out for me. Sometimes things like I'm I'm always looking for a left-footed player. I want a naturally left-footed left-back and I want a naturally left-footed uh, centre-back, left-centre-back. So just the ability of a player, like a left foot stands out. Then you're looking at, well, what qualities, you know, does a player want the ball? Are they comfortable on the ball? How do you define comfort? Uh, the little things that, you know, there was a little kid last night playing with the ball with the outside of his foot. Every pass was around the corner. So that stood out. And I, I'm, I'm the same wherever I go is players down the years. Glenn Hollow was my first favorite player, you know, um, a Luka Modric. So that type of player will always stand out to me. I'm a Messi fan, but I'm not a Maradona fan. I like his passing rather than, you know, and I'm not a Ronaldo fan. Not saying like I respect what he's done, but you can see the type of player. But I also like defenders who defend, you know, like I like a player who goes into a tackle. So things for me that stand out is a player sliding in to clear the ball off the line, covering the, the keeper, a slide tackle that they win that 50, 50 ball or they lose and they get up and they recover. So there's all, all things that as you've, you know, you, you're around the game, you know, that it's not, it's not just, you can't just fit players into one little box. you got to think position. you got to think level. You've got to think, you know, what it what is it that they bring to the game? You know, you want your eight to be different than your 10, you want your six. You know, what what do you want in a six? Like they've got to be hard working, industrious. But you do if you have them with ability, then you're ahead of the game. But at the very least, you want them to do the things that and you know. I mean you mentioned it there, Dave, speaking of US soccer, throughout all this time at Quinnipiag too, you've also served in various US youth national coaching staffs. You've also been an educator. How has that process of development been for yourself? It's been tremendous. Uh, one, I mean, one of the reasons I've also stayed at the school and the longevity is they've allowed me to work outside. There are schools and universities that restrict what you do. Um, I was fortunate enough when I went full time, I could negotiate salary or conditions. So I went with conditions because it's, it allowed me to stay with U.S. soccer and club and do other things. And, you know, over that period of time, I've been with U.S. soccer since 98 on staff. Um, but, yeah, every every opportunity, every time I'm away, every team I've been around, every course I teach, it's professional development for me. 
Uh, I've been fortunate over now I'm teaching the A license. So the A senior, the A college down the road, hopefully the A pro I'm starting to be around and mentoring and, and overseeing coaches who are working at high levels. So every chance that I get to work with a, a good coach at a high level, whether it's a college program, a pro club, youth development, national team, that's an opportunity for me for professional development. So people are always like, oh, how do you do it? I, I, I love it. It's not a job. Yeah, when assignments come in and you're sitting there and you're grading and you're going through people's documents and you're reading it again or you're watching a session and evaluating online. But I'd rather I'd rather watch them in person. But post-COVID, we're still online doing the video, like watching the sessions online. But it, it other people around the world, like, you know, what my mom and dad did for work, that was a real job. This, you know, if, if grading an assignment is a job, you know, yeah then, you know, I, I, I haven't done too bad. Um, so, yeah, I love it. I use it. I use it for myself as professional development and an opportunity to sort of continue to stay fresh in the game, stay current, stay active, and then just different facets of the game, the youth level, the college level, the club level, the pro level as well. Uh, you know, I'm always in different worlds. It's great. And looking at professional development, Dave, I mean, as we begin to wrap up the show, I mean, what is the biggest challenge currently facing you as a head coach? I, I think what you what you get to is is where do you need to focus? You know, I'm, I'm 55 now, and then you start to go, all right, what do I need to work on? I, I have a list. I'd love to I'd go back and do a bio, biomedical science, you know, biomechanics, that type of thing, periodization, exercise science, sports psychology. Love to know more about that. I'd love to speak Spanish as a second language so I could, you know, if, if I was if I was ever to go on the men's side or into the pro game, the ability to speak Spanish or Portuguese would be paramount uh, to really working up at those levels, especially in CONCACAF. Uh, I've missed out on scouting opportunities on the men's side because I don't speak Spanish. You know, you can't send a coach to Costa Rica or South America, Central America if you don't speak Spanish. Uh, so that's been a detriment. So I say that to coaches younger, speak, learn to speak Spanish. Uh, because it'll open so many doors in the game for you around the world and the opportunity to do things. Uh, your professional development comes very narrow. Um, listen, every opportunity to coach, yeah. But as you get older, you become not set in your ways. I don't think I'm set in my ways. I still think of myself as a progressive coach. But one of the lessons that I learned from working with, you know, I got to, I got to spend some time with Bobby Robson at PSV and it always resonated with me that, who who educates the educators? Where does where does the educator go to? Who does Bobby Robson go to for his professional development? And that's always been a question I ask coaches. Like if I was doing a podcast on five questions, that would be one. Where did you go to, you know, for professional development? If you ever read like Carlo Ancelotti's book, what he did is he went to Vancouver to become a gourmet chef to learn how to be a gourmet chef. That was his professional development. Had nothing to do with football. Um, some go to other sports like you know when Roy Keane did his A pro I think he went with the New Zealand All Blacks um, so I think that that's that's like what will help me in my job you know is it communication is it is it social media because you're dealing with a different generation is it is it knowing the culture of the players coming through I don't know I mean it's it's a constant thought process in my head is like for me personally what is it 
um, because I do serve different roles. Like I used to think I, I had the experience to be the tech, you know, like if you said to me, what's my next job, it would have been, I want to be the technical director of us soccer coach ed, not the, not the national team technical director. But now I look at what we're doing and I feel underqualified for that role, even though I've been with us soccer 20 years. Um, and it's not so much, it's not the presentation of the information. It's, it's the smooth presentation. It's also the, the, the amount of information and the language that we're going, you know, from the pedagogy and, you know, the psychology and just the, the detail that are, is now involved in actually writing a curriculum, you know, that the language and how you present and the level of detail and the layering in there of all the different facets of education. And I go, you know, really, if I was going back into that, if that I'd almost need to go back and do a master's again in education to learn the current language, to learn that level of detail, because really the highest levels now of the game from coach education, whether it's Spain, Italy, Holland, Germany, Belgium, like all our bosses are Belgian. You know, we just hired Matt Crocker from the FA uh, from Southampton and just the, what they, the amount of information, what they put together. Like, I think it, it's not beyond me, but it's not what I thought my, it's not my, where my skill set is. I think I'm a good instructor. I think I'm a good educator. But now that next level, in terms of being the one that writes the curriculum and presents the curriculum and then works with the staff, I think I have a long way to go. So that's, you know, do I now invest in myself in the next five or 10 years, up to 65 to do that? Uh, that's something that I've got a way up, you know. But if you'd asked me five years ago, I thought I was on that track. Now I'm looking at, you know, I won't say I have an inferiority complex, but I'm looking at what, uh, a Dave Chesler, a Didier Chambaron, uh, Barry Pauls, who've worked for the Belgian Federation, uh, Oceana's director of coaching, and Ches was technical director of U.S. soccer, assistant coach of U.S. men's and women's national teams. And even though I think I know the game, I'm like behind them and their level of detail. So I, I still think I have a lot of growth in that area to be a teacher, to be an educator, to be a lead, going back to your initial question, to be the leader of US soccer coach education. I have a long, I think I have a long way to go. Dave, it's been thoroughly enjoyable and pleasant on my behalf to record this episode, which you've taken a lot away. And it's been great to see the transition from the boy that took the ferry across to Hollyhead to watch everything back in the day to where you are currently situated in Kinnipiag. And what a bright future ahead. I mean, for those listening that are that slightly better inspired, what would be the one bit of advice you'd give them as to begin to thread a similar path to yourself? The one thing I always come back to is the love of the game. Uh, you, you know, again, only a certain, you know, people always grow up, the, you aspire to be a player, but now I think you can aspire to be something else in the game. Um, it can be a player, it can be a coach, it can be a fitness coach, videographer, scout, referee, they're full-time, they travel the world, administrator, uh, social media director. You know, I've, I've done my master's in media and then the access that I get as a journalist to be around teams and on the field. You know, I've got more access as a journalist to be on the field than I ever did as a coach, ironically enough. But just even that, that's part of the game. You know, if you're, if you're the media director for 
Man City, you still got a chance, you know, you have the chance to win the league, Champions League. If you're the media director for Argentina, you've gone to a World Cup. I mean, you're still part of the game. You're still in the game. You're still working with, you know, you're, you might be responsible for getting Messi to, you know, his press conference. I mean, when I was doing my master's and I was an intern with the revolution, we hosted Inter Milan and AC Milan for the Copa, uh, the Italian Super Cup in Foxborough in Mass. And my job for the two days and the day of the game after was getting Mourinho to his press conferences. So nobody else knew who he was. And nobody else wanted the job. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. So I was the person picking him up on the field, walking him in, sitting him down, taking the questions. But I had access to Jose Mourinho. So when you think about that, that that, that three days to watch, sit on the sideline, watch the sessions uh, and then lead them. And then it was the same. Uh, Gus Hedding took over at Turkey and we were hosting it in New Britain. And I was the I was actually the site director for the game. Turkey played Northern Ireland. But Gus Hiddink wasn't officially the manager of Turkey because he still had a job. I think he was in, he might have been in Korea or something. No, he was in Russia. He was in Russia and he was taking the Turkey job. But we had to block off and not let anybody in. But for three days, I had access to Gus Hiddink. I was watching all his sessions, same thing, leading uh, you know the press conferences. The game was going out in Europe, so I was coordinating with Europe and FIFA and all of that. But I sat on the sideline with my notepad, cameras, everything like that. And that's that's because of the media. But those those were two great professional development. But I love that role. And I think that's the one thing that my dad instilled in me is the love of the game. And you don't have to be a player, that there's so many other roles in the game. And now when I look at it, we were talking before, and you know, three weeks ago, I was on a recruiting trip, but I was in a recruiting trip. I was in Dublin, went to Rovers, I was in London. Was at West Ham Newcastle, spent the day at West Ham Academy, watched the U18s train, went to Poland, like you Warsaw, the U17s, the U19s, went to Germany, Red Bull Leipzig, went to watch the women play. Um, where else did I play? Into? I was in Holland, watched it. I mean, that's a job. You know, you get to travel, you get to see, you get to meet all these coaches, get to meet, see all these cultures, watch all these games. You've got to love it. You know, I'm going to the World Cup this summer in Australia. I'll be down in New Zealand. Uh, it's a it's a family trip. My daughter's actually Quinnipiac's doing a class on it, so my daughter's been in it this spring. But we'll go to Ireland, Australia. I'll see the US, Vietnam, and Auckland. I'll go to watch a couple of my players play for Jamaica um, against France. And that's it's work, it's professional development. Plus, I get to go to Australia and New Zealand, which you know I haven't done previously. So I think you've got to love what you do, whether it's being a coach, being a player, being an administrator, being a ref. There's so many opportunities in the game, but just love the game and then respect the game because the game will give back. If you give to the game, the game will give back to you. Fantastic way to close the show. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed oh, this one. No problem, Connor. It's good.